You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Masiratul Nabawiyah, the prophetic biography. Uh, we took a break for a couple of weeks uh, there uh, due to the khatib workshop and um, just a difficult schedule. But uh, alhamdulillah, we're back on track and plan to continue. Inshallah, from uh, this week on out. Inshallah, every week, hopefully, bismillah. Um, last time we had the sira um, class, we were talking about the what we discussed was the different phases of nubuwa, the different stages of prophethood. We started off by talking about the Prophet ﷺ, of course, receiving revelation, the first handful of people, the first four people to believe the message. We then talked about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala afforded the Prophet ﷺ a certain amount of time. Um, some narrations say possibly up to a couple of weeks that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala afforded the Prophet ﷺ this time to be able to internalize the message, internalize this prophethood, and be able to be able to come to terms with the mission and the task at hand. Once the Prophet ﷺ had come to terms with this, and um, he had basically internalized this, and he was comfortable now in this position and this responsibility, this, the prophethood took, moved into its second phase. And the second phase of the prophethood was to take the, take the message to his family members. And we talked about how the Prophet ﷺ had not one but three successive dinners that he hosted for the leaders of the family, the household, the extended family, the uncles, the cousins, etc. Basically, the men of Banu Hashim. And it took the Prophet ﷺ three different occasions, three separate dinners to finally be able to communicate the message to them. When the Prophet ﷺ finally was able to communicate the message, he was met with resistance and denial and rejection by his uncle Abu Lahab. After that time, the Prophet ﷺ decided that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rather commanded the Prophet ﷺ that now it was time. So for the first command was Andir Ashira Takal Aqrabin. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded the Prophet ﷺ to take the message public. In order to do that, the Prophet ﷺ gathered all of the people of Quraysh. Now these were the different families of Quraysh. Banu Fihr, Banu Tain, Banu Hashim, Banu Amr. He gathered all these different families of Quraysh together. And then the Prophet ﷺ ascended onto the Mount of Safa and he addressed them from there. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Ya Bani Fihr, Ya Bani Tain, Ya Bani Amir, Ya Bani Hashim. Ya Bani Abdul Muttalib. He addressed all of them. And then the Prophet ﷺ gave them the message. And told them that it was time for them to wake up. It was time for them to realize and understand what was going on. And what the true purpose of their life actually was. Once again, when the Prophet ﷺ delivered this message, and I talked about this, I highlighted this, that you have to understand, this is the objective in this type of a study of the seerah, that we try to extract the relevant lessons. You know, we are a minority trying to share Islam with the world around us here. 
I mean, just uh, today I received an email from the outreach department here, here at the Islamic Center of Irving. It's a constant effort that we have, mashallah. And it's something that we strive to do. But we have to understand one thing about spreading the message and doing da'wah. The Prophet of Allah shared the message. While everyone did not embrace Islam standing right there at that moment, not everyone converted to Islam. But what's very noteworthy is no one spoke out against or disrespected the Prophet in that situation. No one did. And that's very interesting if you think about it. Because the Prophet was a man of such noble character, the Prophet of Allah was a man of such caliber, and he had such a reputation for honesty and trustworthiness in his community, that nobody doubted him. That even if they didn't, they didn't agree with him, they were hesitant to voice their disagreement with him. Because of the respect that he had earned from his people. It was, Abu Lahab was the only person who spoke up on that day. And we, well, is that something that, you know, uh, does that tell us something or not? No, all that tells us is the character of Abu Lahab himself. Which is very, very transparent and obvious and um, witnessed within the seerah itself. We know Abu Lahab wasn't a man of great character. And for that simple reason, Abu Lahab was a very successful businessman, was, not, was never considered a leader, like a political he was never considered a political or social leader of Quraysh. Abu Talib was the leader of Quraysh. Who he inherited leadership from, the, from his father, Abdul Muttalib. Abu Lahab did not. Abu Lahab was a very successful businessman. He was, he was very social. Like he, 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 had, he did a lot of networking. And he had a lot of business contacts. And he was very successful financially. But he wasn't considered a leader amongst his people. Because he didn't possess that type of character. He wasn't a man of that caliber. And that showed in his character and how he would respond and react to these situations. So Abu Lahab was the only one who spoke up at that time as well. And again, of course, the people dispersed. And from there, the mission of the Prophet ﷺ became public. And the Prophet ﷺ, we talked about the narration, started going out to the marketplace. Ya ayyuhannas, qulu la ilaha illallah tuflihu. He would call the people to Allah. O people, O humanity, say there is no one worthy of worship but Allah and you will, guaranteed you will find success. And there are multiple narrations which talk about people witnessing the Prophet ﷺ doing this. Talking to people, sharing the message with people. He was striving, he was working hard, he was exhausting all of his uh, efforts and all of his resources to communicate this message with the people at that time. And one thing that I talked about last time was how the reaction and the people around the Prophet ﷺ at that time could be divided into three categories. Three distinct categories. Number one was the people who openly opposed him. Abu Lahab, his wife, etc. There were those people who believed in him. There were those people who believed in him. And those were Abu Bakr, Khadija, Zayd ibn Haritha, Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu anhu. Then there were people who didn't believe in him, but didn't necessarily oppose him. They were in the middle. And amongst them as well, you could further categorize him into two categories. There were those people who just kind of went about their business or, and were apathetic overall, which is not desirable, it's not exactly what we want. But at the same time, they weren't an obstruction. They weren't being harmful. But there were also some people who did not believe but were supportive of the message, like Abu Talib, noteworthy. 
Right? And so this is basically what was going on. In the last session we talked in detail about Abu Lahab and his opposition to the Prophet ﷺ. And then some of the adversity the Prophet ﷺ faced in terms of that. The torment, the persecution by Abu Lahab and his wife. We also talked about how Abu Lahab demanded of his sons that they basically break off their engagement to the daughters of the Prophet ﷺ. And how that was very something very hurtful and painful to the Prophet ﷺ. So the Prophet ﷺ was no stranger to sacrifice this early on in the message. Now what I wanted to dedicate this particular session to was we talked about some of the early believers. But I want to talk about the early community of believers that was established. And I wanted to kind of create a little bit of an introduction and appreciation for the first group of people who basically accept the message, accepted the message. I've mentioned this before that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was very crucial, very critical, and very important in this regard. How he became a primary force in terms of sharing and spreading the message. From the very first day that he himself embraced and accepted the message, he set out to go and talk to his cousins, talk to his friends, talk to the people that he was close with, that he trusted their character, that he immediately set out to talk to them and bring them to the Prophet ﷺ to accept the message. Some of these people that Abu Bakr anhu communicated with, from amongst them was Zubair ibn al-Awam anhu. Zubair ibn al-Awam anhu, who actually was a cousin of the Prophet ﷺ. He was the son of the aunt of the Prophet ﷺ, Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib, the aunt, the paternal aunt of the Prophet ﷺ. He was her son. So he was the first cousin of the Prophet ﷺ. Of course, he's the father of the famous Abdullah ibn Zubair anhuma, And he was a very noteworthy companion of the Prophet ﷺ, who stood by the side of the Prophet ﷺ and played a very critical role even in the years after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ. He was brought to Islam at that time. Abdurrahman bin Auf. I've talked about how he was someone very close to the Prophet ﷺ. The mother, we talked about this in the very early, early sessions where we were discussing the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. The mother of Abdurrahman bin Awf anhu was present at the time of the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. She was a good friend of the mother of the Prophet ﷺ, Amina bint Wahab, and she was present by her side at the time. And one, some of the narrations about the birth of the Prophet ﷺ and what was witnessed at that time, the light that came out of the womb, out of the stomach of the mother of the Prophet ﷺ. All, some of these narrations are mentioned by the mother of Abdurrahman bin Auf anhu. So he was somebody who was very close to the Prophet ﷺ, and he also was one of the early people to accept Islam. Abdurrahman bin Auf anhu was the leader of his people, to put it very plainly. It said Abdurrahman bin Auf anhu, you know, not at the, uh, not trying to allude to the, um, the, the, the shirk, connotations this could have but as a figure of speech in English they say somebody having the Midas touch somebody has a Midas touch somebody has the golden touch anything they touch turns to gold as a figure of speech Abdurrahman bin Awf anhu was a very successful businessman blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala any endeavor any business that he took on was immediately successful there's a famous story about him migrating to the city of Medina and when he migrated to Medina he was paired with an Ansari as a brother, the Mu'akhat, which we will talk about later. And his Ansari brother offered part of his business, offered him some money to get him up on his feet. Abdurrahman bin Awf anhu very respectfully and, and appreciating him, but respectfully he declined. 
And he said, that's okay, I appreciate it very much, I appreciate the, 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 the gesture, but I don't need that. All I need you is to show me where the marketplace is. And he set out towards the marketplace, and maybe had a couple of pieces of cloth to start off with, and he started buying and selling and trading, buying and selling and trading, and it said that when he returned by the end of the day, he had returned with a significant profit, and he just kept continuing on from there to the point where he eventually reached the level of being a very, very successful businessman. And, and, but at the same time, Abdurrahman bin Awf anhu is known for his taqwa, his God consciousness and his piety. It's said about him that he's from the Ashara Mubashara. He's, the, he's from those 10 Sahaba who were guaranteed paradise by the Prophet in one singular gathering. And the Prophet told him at that time that you will lag behind. You will lag behind, you will come way after everybody else like the rest of the group. And he said, why, O Messenger of Allah, why am I lagging behind? And the Prophet of Allah basically told him, he said that because you will be busy giving the uh, accountability and answering for the wealth that you possess. And that always weighed heavy on him. It wasn't to guilt him, that somehow he was supposed to be guilty just because he was blessed by Allah. But the Prophet was doing tarbiyah of one of his students one of his companions, somebody who was very close to him, somebody of a very high caliber, telling him that you always gotta be very conscious about who you are, and to make the most of this blessing. And he was known to do so. And there's a very famous, very famous story about him that during the years of the Khilafah, uh, I believe this is during the Khilafah of Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu, that uh, a, basically a business delivery arrived in Medina, a trade caravan, which is Classical terms for a business delivery. So you know like when there's a business delivery arrives like at a, at a big supermarket or at a warehouse and you have like 18 wheelers. So these are camels that are tied together in a long succession. And this business delivery arrived and it said that the business delivery was so huge that from the first camel to the last camel, it spanned the entire city of Medina. That's how huge the business delivery was. And the whole Medina was a buzz. You can imagine, I mean, just imagine if the road was blocked off with a bunch like 18, 18 wheelers outside. Everybody would be like, what's going on? What's happening? So the whole Medina was a buzz. Aisha radiallahu anha heard about this, so she came out of her home to see this, and she asked, what's going on here? And somebody said, this is Abdurrahman bin Auf's delivery. These are his business goods that have just arrived. So she sent a message to Abdurrahman bin Auf radiallahu anhu. Congratulations, Mubarak, may Allah bless your wealth. Remember what the Prophet ﷺ told you. Remember what, because she also understood that he was somebody very beloved to the Prophet ﷺ. So she was looking out for him. Remember what the Messenger of Allah ﷺ told you. And when he received the news, the narration says that he broke out into tears. He started to cry. He was so deeply affected by it. And he said that everything, from the first camel to the last, everything is given away in sadaqah, go and deposit in the Baytul Mal, distribute it to the poor. That was the character of Abdurrahman bin Auf, He was also a very strategic thinker. He was a leader of his people and a very strategic thinker. And this was displayed by the confidence that not only the Prophet had in him, but the confidence that the other Sahaba that also had in him. When Umar ibn Khattab anhu passed away, when he was near death, he appointed a council. He appointed a council to oversee the appointment of the next Khalifa. And he appointed six Sahaba. 
And he said that when I pass away, you are to lock yourself in a room and not come out from that room until you have a conclusion as to who should be the Khalifa. And you will vote on who should be the Khalifa and the majority wins. Either it's unanimous, five versus one, four versus two. But you got six people, right? So there's the possibility of what? There being a tie. Well, Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu provided a tiebreaker. And remarkably, his tiebreaker was that if you get tied in the vote three and three on each side, the tiebreaker is Abdurrahman bin Auf. Whichever side Abdurrahman bin Auf is on, that side wins the vote. So his vote basically counts as two votes. I mean, think about the confidence. We talk about the leadership of Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. Think about the confidence that Amir al-Mu'mineen Umar radiallahu anhu has in this man that he says he's the tiebreaker. His vote is worth two votes. So this is a man of great caliber. And he was one of the early people to accept Islam and join the ranks of the believers at that time. Similarly, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas radiallahu anhu was also one of these early people to accept Islam. Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas radiallahu anhu is another very noteworthy companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And he is from the first dozen or so people to accept Islam. And he of course again was very close to the Prophet sallallahu He was actually a cousin of the mother of the Prophet sallallahu the mother of the Prophet ﷺ, Amina bint Wahab, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas was a cousin of the Prophet's mom. So he was a cousin once removed, or second cousin, or whatever that's called. Alright? So he was a relative of the Prophet. And it said that he was 17 years old when he accepted Islam. That's something else that, that, that is a very, very important observation. Maybe if we get time right now, I'll share this towards the end of the session, kind of as a side note. But one thing that's a very interesting observation is, you know, when we say Sahaba, companions of the Prophet, right? It, it, it's, we have so much respect and regard for them. But for some reason, this, this, this image has been created that we immediately picture a very elderly gentleman with a big white beard. Right? So we picture somebody very old. And yeah, of course, they probably did reach an old age eventually. But what's very interesting is that their age when they accepted Islam. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas radiallahu anhu, it said was only 17 years old when he accepted Islam. It's a very interesting story actually from Surah Luqman. Ayahs 14 and 15 talk about the respect for parents. وَوَصَّيْنَ الْإِنسَانَ بِوَالِدَيْهِ حَمَلَتُ أُمُّهُ وَهْنًا عَلَى وَهْنًا وَفِصَالُهُ فِي عَامَيْنَ نِشْكُلْ لِي وَلِوَالِدَيْكَ إِلَيَّ الْمَصِيرِ Respecting the parents. And specifically pointing out the sacrifice of the mother. But then after that it says, وَإِنْ جَأَهَ دَاكَ عَلَىٰ أَن تُشْرِكَ بِي مَا لَيْسَ لَكَ بِهِ عِلْمٌ فَلَا Alright, so it says that, and if they force you, respect your parents, be very conscious of your mother's sacrifice. But if they're forcing you to commit shirk with Allah, do not comply. Don't obey them, don't do shirk. Still respect them and be good to them and serve them, but don't do the shirk. So Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas was very beloved to his mother. He was very close to his mother. And he accepted Islam. And he says, when my mom found out about me accepting Islam, she was devastated. Just because of what it was perceived to be at that time. 
She was just devastated. More than anything else, she was just crushed. She was just sad. She could not be consoled. So she said, why are you doing this? What are you doing? And she, you know, complained and tried to, you know, talk him out of it. And of course, he's a believer, a believer of that caliber. So he didn't, you know, he, of course he did not budge. But it said that at that time, his mother said that, fine, I'm not gonna eat or drink anything until you give up this foolishness. I will not eat or drink anything. And he said, mother, please don't do that. Don't do this. Please consider, reconsider, don't do this. And he said, she was, she was insistent. And he says in the narration that she went about four days without eating or drinking anything. He says, but I did not give up my Islam. Because I couldn't. It's what I believed. Allah and His Messenger وسلم, they were in my heart. I believed in them. It was my iman. I could not give up my faith, my iman. But you know what? The part about doing right by them in this world, he also says, I literally stood by my mother with water and bread in my hand for four days. She did not budge and I did not budge either. Not just in terms of my iman, stood for my iman. You know, youth like to tell these type of stories. Wallahi, he did not give up his faith. Yeah, but he also stood by his mother holding a cup of water, holding a bread in his hand, crying tears in front of her saying, please mother eat, please mother eat. You see the balance? We don't talk about this balance. On both sides of the issue. Sometimes we talk about obedience of the parents as if it's absolute. It's not absolute. The parents could be wrong. The mother was wrong here. You don't give up your deen. You don't give up your iman. But at the same time, Muslim youth need to understand. A lot of times when your parents are making different recommendations, right? You want to wear a thobe to school. And they're saying, no, don't wear a thobe to school. You know, you want to wear a kurta to school. And they're saying, no, don't wear a kurta to school. That's not your iman, brother. That's not your iman, extremist, right? They're, they're not telling you to forsake your iman. That's one thing that needs to be understood by youth, children. Obedience to parents supersedes the practice of sunan. This is written in classical books of fiqh. Classical books of fiqh I've talked about. That if your parents command you not to practice a sunnah, a voluntary act, it becomes fard to obey your parents. Performing that sunnah at that time against the wishes of your parents actually becomes makruh. I mean, think about that. Something to think about, something to consider. But at the same time, let's say somebody's parents are telling them to do something that directly contradicts and violates the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon them. Even then, if you stand your ground and you say, no, I can't give up what I believe in, it's still one thing remains. And the thing that remains is you still have to do right by them. Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas radiallahu anhu stood by his mother, crying tears before his mother, offering food and drink to her over and over and over again for four days until she finally desisted. And she um, finally gave up this pursuit and she took some food and drink. And he said basically she came to terms with exactly what he believed in. And Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas radiallahu anhu is known for you know, his bravery in battles by the side of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And in Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas radiallahu anhu, his life seems to revolve around the theme and the story of family quite a bit. Because there's a story with his mother, and then at the time of uh, Al-Hajjatul Wida'ah, at the time of Al-Hajjatul Wida'ah, the farewell pilgrimage, the Hajj, we're near the season of Hajj now, when the Prophet ﷺ went for Hajj, and all the Sahaba went for Hajj with him, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas also went for Hajj. But what happened was he became very, very sick. Very, he became deathly ill. When I say very sick, it's not that he just felt a little fatigued. No, no, he was deathly ill. Like, even the Prophet ﷺ was very concerned about his survival. Like, will he survive or not? 
People were visiting him. The pro- people were advising him to basically write out his will. That's how bad the situation was. And so he consults the Prophet ﷺ and he says, Oh Messenger of Allah, I only have one daughter. I only have a daughter. The only person that will inherit from me is my daughter. And I don't have a lot of wealth, but I have a significant amount of wealth. And it's only my daughter. And it's more than enough for her. It's overwhelming. So is it okay if I give away two-thirds of my wealth in sadaqah? And the Prophet said no. He said half, he said no. He said one-third, he said yes one-third. But look at this, the Prophet says yes one-third because that's, the, that's permission from Allah. So there's no argument there. He says yes one-third, but then, you know we always talk about fatwa and taqwa, we always talk about wisdom. What is the technical ruling, then what is the wisdom and the hikmah and the issue? The Prophet says Allah allows you to give one-third, so you can give one-third. However, however, he says, one-third is a lot. And then he gave him advice. He goes, it's a lot better. Rather than you sitting here on your deathbed, lying here on your deathbed, you giving away your money into sadaqah and charity, what's a lot more beneficial and recommended than that is for you to leave your family members well off. So that they do not end up on the streets and begging in front of people. Leaving your family, leaving your family members in dignity and honor and, and, and self-sufficient is a lot more admirable than making a huge donation on your deathbed. Family rights. So this is just a little bit about Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas radiallahu anhu. And he's of course one of those few people that the Prophet really expressed a lot of love for. It said that in the battle of Uhud when the Prophet was under you know, attack, when the, when the battlefield was breaking down and the Prophet ﷺ was under attack, it said at that time that the Prophet ﷺ, you know, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas came in and stood in front of the Prophet ﷺ and he was an expert archer and he just started launching arrows protecting the Prophet ﷺ. And it said that the Prophet ﷺ at that time said, keep shooting ya Sa'ad, keep shooting, keep going. And then the Prophet ﷺ even remarked saying that, may my mother and father be sacrificed for you, O Sa'ad. That was a phrase the Sahaba used to say to the Prophet ﷺ, but the Prophet ﷺ very rarely said that to someone else. And Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas was one of those amazing people that this was said to. And this was a young man who accepted Islam literally in the first few days of the message of the Prophet ﷺ. Another one of these very admirable, amazing people who accepted Islam in the very early days of the message of the Prophet ﷺ was Talha ibn Ubaidillah. Talha bin Ubaidillah radiallahu anhu. He was a very, very early uh, convert to, to Islam. And he again is, um, he was a cousin of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu went and spoke to him and uh, shared the message with him because he was a cousin of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And Talha bin Ubaidullah radiallahu anhu was somebody who was known to be very, um, again, very successful in business. He was known to be somebody of very admirable, amazing character. He lived all throughout the era, uh, not just of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He's one of the Ashara al-Mubashara bil-Jannah. He's one of those ten companions who the Prophet sallallahu promised paradise. But he also lived throughout all the era of the Khulafa. And he was always a very strong 
consultant to all of the khulafa, all of the uh, khalifas who followed after the Prophet ﷺ, the successors of the Prophet ﷺ. He was married, he also had a relationship to the Prophet ﷺ through marriage. He was a brother-in-law of the Prophet ﷺ. And brother-in-law is a very broad term in English when we say it. He was basically, his wife and one of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ were sisters. So he was married to uh, Hamna bint Jahsh. He was married to Hamna bint Jahsh, who was the sister of Zainab bint Jahsh, who was the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, one of the Ummahatul Mu'mineen. And he's narrated many different hadith from the Prophet ﷺ. And again, on the day of Uhud, he also showed a lot of bravery and defended the Prophet ﷺ very, um, you know, uh, he defended the Prophet ﷺ very strongly. And the Prophet ﷺ remarked on the day of Uhud that whoever wants to see a living shaheed, whoever wants to see a walking, talking, like living shaheed in this world, should look at Talha. Talha is a shaheed who is still amongst us. He earned the status of shahada without even dying. Because of his devotion, dedication to the Prophet ﷺ, he was another early person to accept Islam. One of the other early converts to Islam was Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu. Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, Amr ibn al-Jarrah radiallahu anhu, uh, excuse me, Amr ibn al-Jarrah radiallahu anhu, he is of course very famously known as Aminu hadhihi al-Ummah, the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa referred to him as the most trustworthy person in this Ummah. And he was actually somebody who was very well known for his character and his quality before, before Islam. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they actually say, that there were three people, three people in the pre-Islamic era, jahiliyyah, in the era of ignorance, there were three people who were known throughout Makkah for their honesty, their trustworthiness, and for their, just, uh, just their, their chasteness, that they were, they were not people who, uh, indulged in any illicit behavior, any bad activity even before Islam. Even in Jahiliyyah, when it was the norm. When it was the norm, when drinking alcohol and fornication, adultery was the norm, there were three people who had a reputation for just not being anywhere near that scene. And not surprisingly, who were those three people? Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu. And the third one was Abu Ubaidah ibn Jarrah radiallahu anhu. And it's not a surprise that all three of them accepted Islam. And it's also not a surprise, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu played the role that he did in the history of Islam. Uthman ibn Affan is who he is. Dhu Nurayn, the third Khalifa. And Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu would be Aminu Hadhil Ummah. He would be put in charge of the Baytul Mal by the Khulafa. He was in charge of the Baytul Mal. He was the person put in charge of the Baytul Mal because there was no, no one more trustworthy than him. And so Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu is a very, very admirable, noble person. And he was very dearly loved by the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And he was a businessman even before Islam, but he practiced this type of, uh, these types of ethics and morals uh, in his business. And it's said that he literally accepted Islam the second day, like the day after Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu accepted Islam. Abu Bakr went to Abu Ubaidah and said, this is the message, this is it. And he embraced Islam. Because it just fits so well with exactly you know, how he lived his life.
the morality, the ethics. And it said that he was also from Banu Taim, but he was from a, from a different family in Banu Taim, and he was the only one to accept Islam from his family. And it said because of that, he suffered a lot of persecution. And he, he was ostracized and outcast from his family, and he dealt with a lot of difficulty and adversity because of that. So after the first group of Muslims migrated to Abyssinia, when the second wave of Muslims went to Abyssinia, he joined them and migrated. He eventually joined the Prophet ﷺ al-Madinah al-Munawwara, soon thereafter when the Prophet ﷺ migrated to Medina. And when he arrived in Medina and the Prophet ﷺ was pairing Muhajir with Ansari, Muhajir with Ansari, he was paired with none other than Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu anhu. So as we say, game recognized game, right? So the Prophet ﷺ paired him with somebody equally as awesome as Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu was, and that was Mu'adh bin Jabal, who was a scholar and a mufti from amongst the ranks of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. It said in spite of this, and he was always a close confidant to all the khulafa, but in spite of this, when they tried to appoint him to actual governor positions, he would refuse, he would reject. He would refuse and he would reject. It's actually said that he was appointed to the position of the governor of Syria. He was appointed to the position of the governor of Syria without his consent. Like they just appointed him and then they just let him know that by the way, you're in charge of Syria from here on out. And he was so uncomfortable with the, with the position and the responsibility that he said, I am here to serve the people. I am here to serve the people, but I cannot accept this position. I'm here to serve. I will advise, I will consult, I will lead, I will teach. I will counsel, I will do whatever you need me to do. I just can't sit in that seat. And we can discuss the fiqh of that, that do you accept positions of responsibility when you are put in them, when you are asked of them, when they are demanded of you or not. So of course the fiqh of it is there, that you should accept the position. But at the end of the day, that does remain a choice. And we cannot discount the sincerity of the Sahaba. It was their God consciousness, their fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and their sincerity that would prevent them from doing so. But you know, in our times that becomes a cop-out because I just don't want to do the job. I just don't want to deal with any responsibility. I just don't want anything expected of me. No, no, no. These were people that would serve the ummah, and would serve humanity, would serve the community 24-7. But it was just their God consciousness and their fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Titles and positions were something they feared. They feared like nothing else in this world. They, they didn't fear death. These people didn't fear death, but they feared titles and positions. Because they knew the corruption of the heart that follows thereafter. And so Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu was a very admirable person of this type of character. Another great early Sahabi who accepted Islam was Sa'id ibn Zayd. Sa'id bin Zayd radiallahu anhu. Sa'id bin Zayd radiallahu anhu is again a Meccan by origin. He's, he's in, uh, he was born and raised in Mecca. He was a Meccan by origin. Um, it said that his nickname was Abu al-A'war. And he was a distant relative. He was basically from the same, he was from Banu Amir, from the same clan of Umar ibn Khattab and Abu Jahl and these people. So he was from a key family of Quraysh. And he was actually married to the sister of Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. So Fatima bint Khattab, the sister of Umar radiallahu anhu was his wife. And that famous story about Umar radiallahu anhu when he sets out to go, وَالْعَيَاذُ billah Assassinate the Prophet And he stops by his sister's house, and he goes there and he beats up his brother-in-law, etc. etc. That was Sa'id bin Zayd. 
That was Sa'id bin Zayd. Some of the narrations, some of the ahadith actually say, some of the scholars of the seer of Sahaba say that he was the first person to be given the responsibility by the Prophet ﷺ to write down divine revelation. He was, if not the first, he was one of the first scribes of revelation. Kutabul Wahi. He was one of the first scribes of divine revelation. Which is a huge position. I mean, think about the trust and the, the, the confidence that that requires. And throughout the early years, he was pretty much the primary scribe of divine revelation. Because there were not very many people the Prophet ﷺ could trust at that time. And he was definitely one of those people. He was very young, he was married young, and they were both a very young, young couple. It said that they were literally um, 20 years old. So they had married very, very young in their teenage years, and that he was basically 20 years old when he accepted Islam along with his wife. And so again, this is another youngster. Um, and he accepted Islam. He, like I mentioned that, uh, oh, one thing very interesting about him, if you go back to the, some of the very early sessions that we had on the seerah here, where we talk about the Hunafa, the few people even before Islam, before the revelation, there were a few people who practiced monotheism, who believed in one God, one, one, one creator. Before there was divine revelation, there was a handful of them, there were a few of them. One of the most famous of the Hunafa at that time was Zayd bin Amr bin Nufayl. Zayd bin Amr bin Nufayl, he was such an amazing person. He was a hardcore, what we would call like a staunch, a, a proper, steadfast muwahid. He was a monotheist. He believed in one God and he stood by that. And he was so practicing of his faith, it said that many times, because it was custom, it was tradition at that time, that when his family members and the tribes people would get together and would have a feast, they would you know, sacrifice animals in the name of their deities and their gods, and a lot of their festivities, just like today as well, you know, people get together for Christmas and for Easter, and based on holidays, families, even if they're not getting together for that exact celebration, they might not be very religious or practicing, but holidays just serve as an opportunity for families to get together. When they would get together and they would kind of be celebrating some deity or some false god, some idol, he would not partake of their food. He would bring his own food or whatever it was and he would say, I can't eat this because this was killed in the name of that idol and I don't believe in those idols. He was very, very staunch. And because of that, he was actually picked on by his family and he was persecuted by his family members and his tribes people. But he stood firm. And the Prophet ﷺ would praise him. Years later, the Prophet ﷺ would praise him. And he would say, Zayd bin Amr bin Nufayl on the day of judgment will be raised as an ummah by himself. He will be an ummah. He himself will be an entire entity of followers because of his, the strength of his faith. Because he represented tawheed at a time when there was no tawheed in the world. He still stood by and represented tawheed. And the Prophet was very proud of him and praised him. Sa'id was the son of this great man. So again, raised by a great man, no surprise that he turned out to be a great man. And he was a very firm believer. And... Um, we talked about you know, his, his marriage and his uh, wife as well. How his wife was a very admirable person as well. 
and he again survived throughout the life of the Prophet ﷺ, was always there by the side of the Prophet ﷺ. He was again one of those people who stood in front of the Prophet ﷺ and protected him on the day of Uhud. These were people who were very attached to the Prophet ﷺ. It's not a surprise that these people who all accepted Islam in those early days rushed to the Prophet ﷺ in the battle of Uhud and stood in front of him because they had a relationship with the Prophet ﷺ unlike any other Sahabi did. They could not imagine life without the Prophet ﷺ. And it said that he finally died uh, 50, uh, in the year 51 after Hijrah. He was 79 years old. He would live to a very advanced age. And he was buried uh, by Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas and Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhuma. They oversaw his janazah and his burial and they were there for his tadfeen. So again, this was a great man that had passed away at that time. So this is a group, and of course it goes without saying, we've talked about Khadija radiallahu anha, we've talked about Uthman ibn Affan being one of those early people to accept Islam, we've talked about Zayd ibn Haritha, we've talked about Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. So this is a group of these early people who had accepted Islam. And then there's a long list of other Sahaba who basically came together to comprise the first 38 in one narration or 40 early believers who had come together to accept Islam in the first couple of years of the da'wah, of the message. And these were the, this was the congregation, this was the jama'ah, this was the ummah that would congregate together in Darul Arqam, the house of Arqam radiallahu anhu. I'm just gonna read their names off for uh, all of our benefits so that we at least, even if we don't have time to delve into the personal uh, seerah of each one of these great men and women, individuals, we at least are familiar with their names at some level. Some of the others who belong in this group are Abu Salama radiallahu anhu, Abdullah bin Abdullah Asad, Al-Arqam bin Abil Arqam, Uthman bin Mad'oon and his two sons, Qudama and Abdullah, Ubaidah ibn Al-Harith, Asma and Aisha binta Abi Bakr, the two daughters of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhum, Khabbab bin Al-Arat, who was one of those early Sahaba who accepted Islam and was tortured relentlessly. This man was tortured so severely that a man of the caliber of Umar radiallahu anhu used to come to him to get motivation. Even later on, during the time of his khilafah, when Umar radiallahu anhu would feel, you know, we all go through this. We all go through this. Recently I had um, somebody I know very well, a student, a friend, personally who's mashallah, very active, uh, does, does unbelievable work. But he was, he was talking to me and he was like, from time to time it feels like there's a little bit of a drain you know, and then you kind of are looking for that recharge. So Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, under the weight of the khilafah, when he would feel kind of drained, he would go and sit with Khabbab bin al-Arat radiallahu anhu. And he would say, tell me about your sacrifices. And it said that he would ask to see the back of Khabbab radiallahu anhu. And Khabbab radiallahu anhu would lift up his shirt and show him his back. And the story says that he was tortured when he accepted Islam because he was a slave, he was tortured. And it said that what they would do to torture him is that they would take coals and they would light them on fire, they would burn them till they were red. And then they would throw him down on his back and drag him across those burning coals. Till his back was completely just destroyed. And Umar radiallahu anhu said, I've never seen anything like that in my entire life. And he said, when I would look at that back, it would sober me up. It would make me realize that that is what you call sacrifice. 
He was one of the early people to accept Islam. Khabab bin al-Arat. Umair bin Abi Waqas, who was one of the shuhada of Badr. He's the brother of Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas. Only 14 sahaba were martyred on the day of Badr. And Umair bin Abi Waqas, the brother of Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas, عنهم, was one of those people. Abdullah bin Mas'ud, whose story we talked about in one of the previous seerah sessions, we talked about how he accepted Islam. How Abu Bakr عنه, and the Prophet went and gave da'wah to this young man who was uh, shepherding and herding camels outside of the boundaries of the city of Mecca, and he accepted Islam and would go on to become one of the most knowledgeable and greatest of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, to where even the Sahaba would call him Mu'allim. Even other Sahaba would call him teacher. So this was the caliber of that man. Mas'ud ibn al-Qari, um, some of the others who are also mentioned are Salit bin Amr, Ayash bin Abi Rabi'ah, and his wife Asma bin Salama, Khulais bin Hudhafa, Amir bin Abi Rabi'ah, Abdullah, and Abu Ahmad, who were the sons of Jahj ibn Dhiab, who was a who was a major leader of his tribe at that time, and both of his sons, Abdullah and Abu Ahmad, both accepted Islam. Ja'far bin Abi Talib, the brother of Ali bin Abi Talib, the son of Abu Talib, who was under the care of Abbas. Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, you might remember we had talked about how Ali ended up in the care of the Prophet ﷺ, that both Abbas, the uncle, and the nephew, Muhammad Rasulullah ﷺ, go to Abu Talib and say that we'd like to help you out in your situation. He's an old man, very limited financial means, has the responsibility of the whole tribe on his shoulders. Let us help you out. So Ja'far one of his younger sons, stayed with Abbas, his uncle, and the youngest of the sons, Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu, stayed with the Prophet So Ja'far radiallahu anhu accepted Islam. And the person who gave him da'wah was his younger brother Ali radiallahu anhu. And Abbas, in whose house, under whose roof he lived, had not accepted Islam yet. He would accept Islam later on, but this young boy accepted Islam first. And it said that he was probably about 14 years old at the time when he accepted Islam. So Ja'far bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu accepted Islam. Um, his wife Asma bint Umais would accept Islam. Hatim bin al-Harith and his brothers Khattab and Muammar would also accept Islam. And their, and their wives would also be some of the early converts to Islam. As-Sa'ib bin Uthman bin Maz'oon, who was the son of Uthman bin Maz'oon. The son of Uthman bin Maz'oon, his son As-Sa'ib, also was an early convert to Islam. Al-Muttalib ibn Azhar and his wife Ramla. This is Ramla bint Abi Sufyan. Ramla bint Abi Sufyan, radiallahu anhuma, she was an, an early convert to Islam in spite of her father being a part of the opposition. She accepted Islam along with her husband. This has a very sad story to it, but also a very... Um, enlightening story to it. They, er, they accepted Islam very early on. They migrated to Abyssinia to escape the persecution. While there, it's a tragedy, but her husband basically, it said that, you know, Allahu alam exactly what transpired, but the narration history tells us he became an alcoholic. He became an alcoholic and some narrations even talk about him forsaking his faith. Or maybe that was just the alcohol talking, Allah knows best. But he eventually ended up dying from his alcoholism. He died from alcohol overdose. So he drank himself to death. And she was pregnant at that time. And she eventually gave birth in Abyssinia 
single mother. She gave birth to a beautiful baby girl by the name of Habiba. And the Prophet ﷺ heard the news of the daughter of Abu Sufyan, one of those early people to accept Islam. Alone there, as a widow, as a single mother, caring for her child. Of course, the community was there. Ja'far bin Abi Talib was in charge, taking care of his people. But still, she's a single mother. And the Prophet ﷺ sent a proposal to her, to marry her. And the marriage was facilitated by Najashi, by the king of Abyssinia himself, who, him, who basically had a feast in honor of this marriage. And she went and joined the Prophet ﷺ as one of his wives. So she would later on become a wife of the Prophet ﷺ, one of the mothers of the believers, Ramla. Na'im bin Abdullah, Amr bin Fuhayra, who was a servant of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, Khalid bin Sa'id and his wife, Amna bin Khalif, Hatib bin Amr, Abu Hudayfa, um, whose name was Mahsham bin Utba, Waqid ibn Abdullah, Khalid bin, uh, ibn al-Bakir, um, ibn Abdul Ya'lil and his three brothers, Amir, Aqil and Iyas, Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anhuma, the famous Sahabi, Ammar ibn Yasir, and also his mother and his father, Yasir and his mother, Sumayya, who would be the first person to lose her life for the sake of Islam, and Suhaib bin Sinan. So these are the first 40 people to basically accept Islam. And... Um, of course, I mentioned the name of uh, Arqam bin Abil Arqam radiallahu anhu, whose house would serve as the first place for these early believers to congregate. And this was the first community of the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa This was the first congregation. And so we see the ummah. We know Al-Madinatul Munawwara. We know about Fatih Makkah. We know about the Al-Hajjatul Wida' and over 120,000 Sahaba gathering, congregating together. We know about these amazing stories, but what we forget to remember, what we forget to realize, it started off as a small congregation of 40 people. A small congregation of 40 people. And so we should never be demoralized. We should never be... Um, demotivated. We should never lose optimism or motivation based on our small numbers. But the Prophet of Allah strove for quality over quantity. One thing I forgot to mention, the reason why I chose to mention a little bit, a snippet of the biography of those first few people, Abu Bakr, Zayd ibn Haritha, Ali ibn Abi Talib, Khadija bin Khuwailid, Uthman ibn Affan, um, we talked about Zubair ibn al-Awam, Abdurrahman bin Awf, Talha ibn Ubaidullah, Abu Ubaidat ibn al-Jarrah, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas, and Sa'id ibn Zayd. The reason why I chose to mention a snippet of the biography of these people, did you see the quality and the caliber of these people? The quality and the... This is something we don't look at. This is something we don't talk about. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of material out there. This is starting to become a focus over the last few years. There's a lot of education, there's a lot of material out there about leadership development, about building an, a healthy, successful organization. There's a lot of material out there about aggregating talents from good to great. It's not about the what or the how, but it's about the who and the why. There's a lot of talk about recruiting an all-star team, putting together a dream team, an all-star cast. There's a lot of this dialogue and discussion out there that is definitely very beneficial in the business world, in the corporate world. 
There's a lot of this talk. But what we forget a lot of times to focus on that the Prophet ﷺ was the ultimate talent scout. The Prophet ﷺ was the ultimate talent aggregator. And the Prophet ﷺ specifically reached out initially to the most talented people that were available at that time. And that's something we don't talk about. Because we do talk about how they were persecuted. So a lot of times somebody who might have a very surface level understanding of the seerah could assume because these people were persecuted, they must not have been looked upon very admirably in their society. These were the leaders of, the, of that time. These were the most talented people at that time. I mean, the three most noble people in the entire city of Mecca were, the, the first, were, were in the first dozen converts to Islam. We're in the first dozen converts to Islam. And so you have to be able to see the strategy of the Prophet ﷺ. He was looking for talent, and he attracted talent. Game recognized game at its very essence. And he was pulling in this talent, and he was cultivating this talent, and he was inspiring and motivating these people, building that all-star cast and that dream team. And that's very important for us to understand and realize. That we don't look for perfection. We look for quality, but we don't look for perfection. And you work with these people, but you recognize and identify. And that's why we find traditions in the, from the sunnah, the hadith collection, we find traditions, a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ says, النَّاسُ مَعَادٍ كَمَعَادِنِ الذَّهَبِ وَالْفِضَةِ People are gold and silver mines. خِيَارُكُمْ فِي الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ خِيَارُكُمْ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ إِذَا فُقِهُ that the best amongst you, the, 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 the most talented amongst you in Jahiliyyah will be the most talented amongst you in Islam as long as they just develop an understanding of the religion. And that's our job to develop the understanding of them with, uh, within them of the religion. That's our job. But we still got to recognize the talent of the people and develop and cultivate that talent and allow them to bring their talent to the Muslim community and allow them to shine and bring to the table what they bring and allow them to flourish, and then provide that spiritual development that they're in need of. And that's what the Prophet ﷺ strove for. And this is a very interesting observation from the early seerah and the early uh, days of the Prophet's mission uh, in Mecca and his message um, at that time uh, in the early days of Mecca. One of the things I, I, I said you know, a little bit earlier that I would talk about was Part of that looking for talent, developing that all-star cast, that dream team, that was the strategy of the Prophet ﷺ. Part of that was specifically targeting younger people. Targeting younger people. You know, we all understand the youth is a concern. We all care about our youth. We're all concerned about our young people. But I can't, you know, and, and, and re, but I can't help but feel that a lot of times our tone is very patronizing. Our tone, our concern for our youth itself is judgmental. And we, we patronize our own youth. And don't think they don't understand this, they don't hear this, because they communicate that to us. They communicate that to us, that they feel that they're patronized. That we talk about our youth almost because, well, they're such a huge problem and they're so terrible that we have to do something about them. Otherwise, God knows they even, won't even be Muslim or not. We don't talk about them in terms of what they bring to the table, what they have to offer. But we talk about them as like a, a spiritual charity case. And it's not very healthy. And that's why the most talented of our youth don't end up showing up. And if they do come, they come in spite of us, not because of us. 
And it's very important to understand, while the strategy of the Prophet was quite the opposite. He targeted them, he went after them and said, you are the right man for the job and we need you, and I need you, and I need you, and you bring this, and you have this, and you have this to offer. And he was targeting these people. I told you about how the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and how we imagined them, listen to their ages when they accepted Islam. And these are some of the leaders of the Sahaba. And these are some of these early converts that we talked about today. Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu fi asah riwayat was 10 years old when he accepted Islam. Abdullah bin Umair and Abu Ubaidah ibn Jarrah were 13 years old when they accepted Islam. Uqba bin Amir or no, excuse me, not Abu Ubaidah, but Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, his son. They were 13 years old when they accepted Islam. Uqba ibn Amir was 14 years old when he accepted Islam. Jabir ibn Abdullah and Zayd ibn Haritha were 15 years old. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Khabbab ibn al-Arat, Zubair ibn al-Awam, who we talked about today, all three of them we talked about today, were 16 years old when they accepted Islam. 16. Talhat ibn Ubaidullah, who we talked about today. Abdurrahman ibn Awf, whose leadership qualities we talked about today. Al-Arqam bin Abil Arqam, who was the founder of the first center where the Prophet ﷺ operated out of. Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas, who we talked about today. Asma bin Abi Bakr, whose name came up today, were all 17 years old when they accepted Islam. Mu'adh bin Jabal, who we talked about briefly today. Musab bin Umair, radiallahu anhu, were 18 years old when they accepted Islam. Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, who we'll talk about later on, eventually was 19 years old when he accepted Islam. Ja'far bin Abi Talib, I got his age a little bit wrong, he was 22 years old when he accepted Islam. Still not very old. If you consider a 22 year old, I don't know how old you are. Alright? Uthman bin Huwaydith, Uthman ibn Affan, Abu Ubaidat ibn Jarrah, who we talked about today, Abu Huraira, and Umar ibn Khattab, radiallahu anhu, all of these people, the cream of the crop, the top level of leadership of the ummah, were all between the ages of 25 to 31 when they accepted Islam. Which again, by any measure, is not old. And so you see the recruitment of the Prophet of younger people. And aggregating the talent of younger people, of the youth of the community. And this was the strategy, the philosophy, and the focus of the Prophet. We'll go ahead and inshallah stop here, pause here, and we'll continue on with some of the key events that unfolded um, as the phase of the Prophet, وسلم, uh, of the Nubu of the Prophet وسلم, went more public and became more established. We'll talk about some of the key converts to Islam, like Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib and eventually Umar ibn Khattab anhu in the coming sessions. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to learn from the life and the example of the Prophet. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi, subhanakallah wa bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta, nasaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum.